Hey everybody, it's Dr. Michael Bruce, and uh, today we're going to do something a little bit different. So when we surveyed everybody, they said that every once in a while, we'd love to hear from Dr. Bruce, maybe do a deep dive on a couple of different topics and answer some of our questions, which he does every week or so anyway. Um, So today I thought what I would do is I chose a topic that I think is very important uh, right now, especially uh, sleep apnea, as a matter of fact. Um, You know, it's not something that I've talked a lot about on the podcast, but It is absolutely positively something that's important to talk about and something that affects a tremendous number of people. So let's get into it. So what exactly is sleep apnea? It turns out that sleep apnea is where there's actually either a partial or a complete stoppage of breathing. Yep, you heard it here, breathing. So why would that happen? And what are the different types of apnea that are out there? So sometimes we have something called obstructive sleep apnea. That's when there is an obstruction or a blockage or a collapse, for example, of your throat. Um, There's another kind of apnea. It's actually called central sleep apnea. This is where your brain tells your lungs don't breathe. That is very different much more difficult to treat, but don't worry, we'll talk about that in a minute. And then there's mixed apnea. This is where there's a little bit of obstructive and a little bit of central that's in there as well. Um, So that can be quite difficult and challenging to treat also. Now, when we are in a sleep laboratory and being tested for something like sleep apnea, what are they doing and why are they doing it (laughs) is the big question that I often get asked. So what is that experience like? Let's back up before we go to the sleep testing and let's talk about what are some of the early symptoms of sleep apnea. Before we get to the testing, let's talk about how do we even know if somebody has sleep apnea. So snoring is a biggie, as I'm sure you can imagine. But remember, not everyone who snores has sleep apnea, but just about 90% of people who have sleep apnea snore. So it's a two-way street, but the traffic is not even on either side of the road. So what is snoring? Snoring is a version of what we call sleep-disordered breathing. So it's not normal breathing. Snoring certainly is not normal breathing, especially if you're sleeping next to a snore. But let's talk about what it is. So snoring is actually air turbulence. So this is the mildest form of sleep disordered breathing. And I call it air turbulence, but the way I like to think of it is kind of like this. If you were in the garden and you were you were watering the flowers, let's say, right? And you put your finger over the end of the hose. You notice that the, the water, it squirts out a lot faster, right? What you've done is you've taken the opening of the hose and you've collapsed it or made it closed with by putting your thumb on the end. That same thing is exactly what happens with snoring. So when somebody is asleep and they're breathing in through their nose, their nose is the hose. And if there's anything along the way that closes the opening or makes the opening more narrow, then the air is going to move faster, just like that water did in the hose. When the water moves faster, it causes a vibration in the tissues inside your throat, which causes a cadence and causes a snore. So for folks out there who've got a snoring bed partner that does not have sleep apnea, I'm here to tell you that there are actually some things to do to open up the pipes, right? Um, Because anything you can do to make that uh, hose wider, slows the air down and makes snoring less. This is why when you go from lying on your back to lying on your side, it reduces snoring. Why? Because when you turn over to your side, your mouth may open and gravity pulls your tongue to the front of your throat, right? And then all of a sudden you've got more air and more airway. 
after you get past snoring, there's something called a upper airway resistance syndrome. Upper airway resistance syndrome, it's not apnea, but it's not snoring. It's somewhere in between. We see this a lot in sleep laboratories in people who are not very big. So many people think that sleep apnea is a big person's disease, meaning that, hey, only heavy people have sleep apnea. That is not the case. Um, while it is the case for the majority of people with sleep apnea, it's certainly not the case for all of them. And so when we look at upper airway resistance syndrome, this is something that we see uh, the slimmer people get. Um, and what happens is, is they don't quite qualify to have an apnea, but their brain knows that they're about to stop breathing and it wakes them up anyway. So this is a, somebody who might have 5, 10, 15 times an hour waking up with no real understanding as to why. That's called upper airway resistance syndrome, and this happens in people who don't quite have apnea. We see this in the sleep laboratory occasionally. The next thing is called a hypopnea. A hypopnea is like half of an apnea, so it's not complete stoppage of airflow, but it's pretty close, and it does wake you up. How do we define an apnea? An apnea is complete stoppage of breathing, for a certain period of time, 10 seconds, uh, with an arousal or an awakening that happens afterwards and a drop in your oxygen saturation. I know that sounded very complicated, but it's just this. It's oxygen is slowing down, you see somebody stop breathing, and then they wake up. This can happen hundreds of times in a night. So what we do um, when we have somebody come in for a sleep study, now I'm going to tell you all about a sleep study, is you might go to a doctor and they might say, okay, well, what are your symptoms? Well, my symptoms are I snore. My symptoms are that I'm tired during the day. My symptoms might be that I have depression. I could wake up in the morning with a dry mouth or even a headache, um, and I'm kind of cranky like all the time. Well, sounds like you might need a sleep study. Um, the first thing I do, though, before I jump to the sleep studies, I take a look inside their throat to really take a look at their uh, what we call uh, anatomical architecture. So what does that mean? Tonsils, adenoids, tongue, throat, all that kind of good stuff. Sometimes we can see just from looking in somebody's throat exactly what the problem is. But more times than not, we can't. We just have a suspicion. So they go in for the test. So you're about to go in for this test. What is it going to involve? Well, here's the thing. Somebody is going to attach 27 different electrodes to your body. There are going to be two belts around your chest and abdomen. There'll even be electrodes attached to your legs. There'll be a video camera on you. You're going to sleep in an unfamiliar uh, environment. Uh, and there's the high likelihood that somebody's going to walk in in the middle of the night and maybe even ask you to try a treatment for sleep apnea. That really doesn't sound like an environment that's going to be too conducive to sleep now, does it? Um, unfortunately, that's kind of the best that there is if you're doing an in-laboratory study. The good news is, is that there's some, been some great advances in sleep apnea technology, and we now have home sleep testing. Um, most sleep laboratories around the country do home sleep testing, and it's much better. And to be honest with you, it's a lot easier. Usually you get a little unit. It's about the size of maybe a coffee can. And... Um, it will have a couple of things that you attach to you. Maybe there's some uh, oxygen sensor like a cannula. Maybe there's something that's going to measure your oxygen level or your heart rate and a position sensor. And then you just push the button, turn it on, go to sleep, wake up in the morning, push the button off, and then put it into a box and mail it. And guess what? It gets scored. And then we can determine, do you have sleep apnea or not? So what somebody does is they look through all of the tracings, all of the different things that were recorded, and they count them all. 
And so one of the things that are counted are the apneas, then the hypopneas, and we create an index. So there is something called your apnea hypopnea index. This is the number of times that you either stop breathing or almost stop breathing in a given evening. Now, let me tell you the severity so you understand what it means. So if you or somebody that you love or care about has had a sleep study, they will be diagnosed with sleep apnea if they stop breathing in their sleep five times an hour or more. That is the cutoff for diagnosis. However, it gets a little more interesting when you start to look at the higher numbers. So five to 15 is mild, 15 to 30 times an hour, believe it or not, is only moderate, and 30 and above is severe. So invariably, somebody always asks me, what's the worst case you've ever seen, Dr. Bruce? Um, I actually saw somebody when we were practicing in Georgia that had stopped breathing in their sleep close to 200 times an hour. So this was roughly every 18 or so seconds that they were not breathing and waking up. You can only imagine how terrible of a night of sleep that, that this individual was getting. Now, that's just the uh, assessment portion that does not have anything yet to do with the treatment portion. But before we get into treatment, um, we should probably look at the idea of, well, is this harmful? Like, do I care if I stop breathing in my sleep? I mean, I get it. I'm tired. But is it really going to cause any major problems for me down the road? The answer is undoubtedly yes. So there is a tremendous amount of data about people who are either undiagnosed or untreated for sleep apnea. So we know... The biggest uh, pile of data seems to be in the cardiac world. And so here's one of the things that happens when a body has an apnea. When you stop breathing at the mouth, your heart doesn't know that you've stopped it just yet, but it figures it out pretty quickly and then it begins to slow down. It's slowing down to conserve the oxygen that's in your system. But then there's a point in time where your brain says, holy crap, there's no more air in here. And your brain stimulates you to wake you up. So you go, and you wake up. So your heart rate slows down, speeds up, slows down, speeds up all night long. In some very extreme cases, we call this bradytachycardia. Um, but generally speaking, we just see a slowing and a speeding of the heart. Now, you might think, oh, well, that's not a big deal. I mean, hey, I can go for a run and my heart, heart rate will go up. That's not a problem, right? Well, think of it like this. You're going to be slowing down and speeding up for anywhere between six and eight hours in a row all night long, when in fact your heart is supposed to be resting or pumping at about 60 beats per minute or lower, and it's very calm, restful beating. So that's part of the problem here is the cardiac issues. So what eventually happens? Well, I'll tell you. So first thing that happens is your heart uh, muscle begins to change because one, it's speeding up, then it's slowing down. One, it's speeding up, then it's slowing down. And so what you end up with is an irregular heartbeat. So that's not good either. And then eventually this will turn into something called atrial fibrillation. Now, before it does that, it will turn into high blood pressure or what we call hypertension. And in many cases, we see people who have what we call refractory hypertension. This means uh, high blood pressure that you cannot uh, actually treat with medication. In many of those cases, they, these people have undiagnosed sleep apnea. And as soon as we treat the apnea, the hypertension goes away. Um, but from hypertension, you move on to atrial fibrillation. Um, from atrial fibrillation, you usually move on to heart attack, stroke, and death. 
Um, I, I, I know I say that in such a strange way, but it's true. And that's exactly what happens to most of the people who have sleep apnea if it goes undiagnosed. Now, if you're more severe, then yes, you have a greater likelihood of other things happening. If you're more mild, then you have other treatment modalities that might be different, and there are probably fewer consequences in the long run. But again, mild is anywhere from 5 to 15 times an hour when you're stopping breathing. So there's quite a bit of stuff going on there. Um, the second area that's big for many people um, that they don't even realize is affected by undiagnosed sleep apnea is intimacy and libido. So there's a lot of data now to show both for men and women that if they have undiagnosed sleep apnea, they're not really that interested in fooling around. It's not, not tonight I have a headache. It's not tonight I'm tired, right? And, um, and that can have some pretty long-term effects on people in a lot of different ways um, from a relationship standpoint uh, and many other areas as well. Um, but it's not just your heart and it's not just your privates that are being affected by sleep. It's also your brain, right? So how many people do you know who aren't sleeping well, sleep deprivation, right? Uh, and, uh, and they're grumpy. I mean, they're grumpy all the time. Well, we know that people with sleep apnea absolutely can suffer from some mood disorders. Specifically, depression and anxiety are quite high in undiagnosed sleep apnea patients. So if you're looking for reasons why you would want to treat your sleep apnea, I'm not sure there's many more other than your heart, your sex life, and your mental health are all directly related to your ability to breathe at night. So I would say go fix it. Okay, Dr. Bruce, well, you've convinced me that I need to not only figure out if I have it by looking at my symptoms and also maybe checking some of my family members, but also maybe even going and getting tested with a home sleep test or even an in-lab study. But let's be fair. What are they going to do to me? Uh, what kind of stuff are they going to do to fix this? Is there a pill? Is it a surgery? What's going on here? Well, there's some very interesting news on that front. Um, as a matter of fact, last week, uh, there was a, a phase two clinical trial for the first ever pill for sleep apnea. Yes, you heard it here, folks, the first ever pill for sleep apnea. Made it through phase two so far. It's very interesting. Um, I'm really hopeful that it'll be working sometime soon. Now, you might wonder, well, why would I be hopeful for a pharmaceutical intervention for sleep? Well, to be honest with you, the number one intervention for sleep apnea is something called a CPAP machine. This stands for Continuous Positive Airway Pressure. So think vacuum cleaner in reverse. So it turns out that the very first uh, CPAP machine was developed by a man named Colin Sullivan down in Australia. And he had a daughter who had terrible sleep apnea. And she was asleep on the couch. And I believe that she was quite large. And he noticed that she was choking and gasping and stopping breathing. And so I think he actually reversed the motor either on a pool pump or on a vacuum cleaner. I can't remember exactly. But over the course of time, he actually basically helped her breathe at night. And then over the course of time, developed this thing called a CPAP machine. Well, it was pretty amazing because now CPAP is the number one treatment for sleep apnea in the world. It works 98% of the time. Um, there are a few side effects that can happen from people with CPAP. They are incredibly, incredibly rare. Um, but the biggest problem with CPAP aren't the side effects. It's that it's not too sexy or fun to wear at night. So what is a CPAP? It is a mask that sits on your face and there's an air compressor that sits right by your bed and it pushes air and you know that area that collapses, it just ever so slightly moves the anatomy apart and pushes 
air straight to your lungs and allows you to breathe. To be clear, this is the treatment for obstructive sleep apnea. Remember, we talked a little bit before about central sleep apnea. That's a very different one, and we can talk at the end a little bit about that because it is kind of rare. Now, the problem is, is that people don't like sleeping with a mask on their face. Now, there must be 60 or 70 different masks out there. Um, I personally have used uh, several different masks. You might be wondering, Dr. Bruce, do you have sleep apnea? I actually don't, but I decided that if I was going to make my patients wear a CPAP machine, I was going to try it myself. So I wore one. It took me three weeks to get used to it, number one, and it took me that period of time to be able to sleep the entire night wearing it. So if you are newly diagnosed, don't get discouraged because quite frankly, it does take a little bit of time to get used to a CPAP machine. Now, I'll be honest. There are many people out there who say, there's no way I'm sleeping with that mask on my face. That's okay. There are other options. We talked about the pill. We've talked about CPAP. There are these things called oral appliances. These are dental guards. So if you are a a teeth grinder, a tooth grinder rather, Um, You may have gotten one of these. Uh, It's like a bite guard. It keeps you from cracking your teeth and things like that. This one, however, is very specialized. It's an upper and a lower. And what it does, which is really interesting, is it takes your lower jaw and it slightly moves it forward. Now, you might be wondering why on earth would we want to do that? By the way, it's only by about two millimeters. Um, what, What happens is when we move the mandible or your lower jaw forward, it actually opens up your posterior airway space. What is that, Dr. B? That's the space behind your tongue. So what you're doing by putting one of these little mouth guards in is you're bringing your lower jaw forward, almost like you're kind of bringing your teeth out like a bulldog would look like, right? Because they have that underbite. I think it's called an underbite. Maybe it's called an overbite. I'm not sure which. Either way, you know what bulldogs look like. Their teeth come out from under, and that's kind of what you're doing to open up your airway. I've worn one of these as well. Here's the good news. It doesn't hurt. You'd think that it might, but it actually doesn't. It takes your jaw a little getting used to, and you do have to do some exercises in order to avoid things like uh, TMJ. Now, if you do have TMJ, you're going to want to be careful about wandering into the oral appliance universe because it could, in fact, make things worse. I always tell people, if you're going to use an appliance, an oral appliance, a dental guard as they're called, do not just buy one off the internet, boil it and stick it in your mouth. You really want to go to a dentist. Dentists are now actually trained in dental sleep medicine. There's even a board exam. So you really want to think through this idea of going to somebody who's highly trained in sleep and dental prosthetics so that way you can get exactly what you're looking for. Now, you may be wondering yourself, well, I heard that CPAP is covered by Medicare and insurance and things like that. And by the way, it usually is. Um, Are dental appliances covered? Well, it depends upon your insurance, but in many cases they are. So it's certainly something that you want to look into. And I'll be fair, it's so much easier to wear a dental appliance at times than it is to wear a CPAP. Again, I've got patients who would say, you have to pull my CPAP from my cold, dead hands. Uh, And I've got people who say, I would never touch that thing. So the great news here is there's options out there. Now, there's some other options that are kind of interesting as well. Um, One is called ProVent. So ProVent is actually a little valve. It looks like a Band-Aid that you put on your nostril. And as long as your mouth stays closed, it opens and closes this valve and it creates CPAP pressure, about the CPAP pressure, about eight or so. This is a very interesting tool that I've used for many of my patients who are travelers and don't want to lug a CPAP with them. Although I will tell you now, they make CPAPs about the size of a Coca-Cola can. I got one for a patient the other day from uh, my, my buddies over at ResMed. And I'm going to tell you something. 
it was fantastic. It's literally the size of a Coca-Cola can. Um, and uh, the person that I sent it to loves it. Um, he travels all the time and he uses it constantly. Um, and actually, I've talked to him on this podcast before. His name is Carson Daly. So, you know, when we start to look at all of these different options, it's really cool. But we haven't talked about the final one, which is the surgical option. So, could you have surgery and basically cut out the anatomy? The answer is, if you have obstructive sleep apnea, absolutely. You 100% can. Now, I'm going to tell you something. I've been in practice for 23 years now. And in those 23 years, the first time before I came to Los Angeles, I sent three people for surgeries. And I'm going to tell you something. These surgeries are barbaric. I mean, they it's like we used to call it the roto-rooter. It's called the U-triple-P. It's the uvulopharyngeopalatoplasty. Try saying that 10 times fast. What it does is they cut out the uvula and all the tissue in the back of your throat. It's a super vascular area, so it can be extremely painful. Um, here's the problem is 50% of the time, the tissue grows back. And it's such a gross surgery, meaning that they just, they pull out all kinds of anatomy that may be helpful if you had kept it. So I'm, I was never a big fan. Then I came to Los Angeles and I met a doctor over at UCLA. And I got to tell you something, this guy is bright. Now he's not the only one that does this, but he's the first person that I saw do it. And he let me come into surgery and watch. What he does is he actually puts people to sleep with an anesthetic. And then he takes a camera and he puts it up their nose and he hangs it just down behind their throat. And he watches to see where in their anatomy it's collapsing. And then he only cuts out those areas. So I've had three people go to him for surgery and I had three people back in the day. All three of my back in the days had miserable experiences, two of which the tissue grew back. With the three that have done it through my buddy over at UCLA, here's what I can tell you. All of them are happy. All of them made it through it and all of them no longer have sleep apnea. So there are lots of surgeries. There's some that break your jaw. There's some that move your tongue. There's some for noses. There's some for throats. It all depends upon your anatomy. And I am not a surgeon, so I am not qualified to tell you what types of surgery you should have. However, there are some well-established surgeries. And then there's something else that's really cool that uh, people haven't heard about yet, maybe, and it's called Inspire. This is a really interesting device because it's a little battery that goes underneath your clavicle and then two wires go up through your neck. You don't feel them. Uh, and they hit, it goes into a special area in the back of your tongue. And that way, every time your tongue starts to slide back in your throat, it sends a very, very small electrical signal, which pushes it forward. So it's like an indwelling CPAP kind of thing. And it's awesome. Actually, it has nothing to do with CPAP. It's all electricity. But at the end of the day, it's FDA approved. There are thousands of people that have done this now. I've spoken with several clients who've had this done and they really like it. Obviously, you want to go with a surgeon that really knows what they're doing and has had a lot of experience, but this is another option that's very that's getting very popular and is very effective. Now, I've talked about all the different treatment modalities for sleep apnea. I've talked about the symptoms. I've talked about the consequences. I've talked about the definitions of all of what it is. Um, but I've really primarily focused on obstructive sleep apnea. And so for just a moment, I'd like to talk to you about central sleep apnea because it's a little bit more rare, but I do have some interesting stories about it. So um, the very first central sleep apnea case that I ever saw was a school bus driver. So I got this case when I was in Atlanta and um, he showed up and what he told me was is that he would open the door of his school bus and he would proceed to fall asleep. 
And then when the last child would get on, they would hit him in the back of the head and he would wake up and close the door and then drive to the next stop. Well, clearly you can imagine the parents were not too happy about this. So he got turned in and he got ended up in my uh, my queue, if you will. And um, we went ahead and we did a sleep apnea test on him. It turned out that he had severe, severe central sleep apnea. Again, that's where your brain tells your lungs don't breathe. So this is incredibly rare. Um, and uh, not something that's easy to treat either. So in these cases, we send people for an MRI of their brain, because, or their skull rather, because in many cases, they could have something called curare malformation. This is where part of your brain forms outside of the skull, and the place where it's kind of seeping through the skull, it's pinching on the respiratory centers. Turns out that's exactly what this guy had. I'd never seen it before. It was kind of cool from a medical standpoint, not from a human standpoint. Um, but the good news was we got him over to neurology uh, and neurosurgery, and they actually broke through the bottom of his skull, scooped up his brain, created a shelf, and guess what? No more apnea. So that was pretty cool. It doesn't always happen that way. Um, with central sleep apnea, sometimes we actually have to do a, use a medication called theophylline, which is a respiratory stimulant. Then there are also some other very specialized types of CPAP machines that can be used for them as well. Also, I should let people know that CPAP isn't just CPAP. They now have something called BiPAP, which is where you breathe one pressure going in and a second pressure coming out. This makes it a little bit easier to breathe. Think about if you were driving down the street at 15 miles an hour with your head out the window. It's easy to bring it in, but it ain't so easy to push it out. That's where BiPAP kind of comes into play. Then they also have something called an auto-titrating CPAP. This is my favorite by far because what it does is it allows people to roll into different positions. It allows people to gain or lose weight. It allows people to have their disease progress or slow down, yet still give effective treatment. So it's pretty awesome. So if you're out there and you're considering CPAP, I would suggest an auto-titrating CPAP if at all possible. So we've gone through sleep apnea and we've talked quite a bit about what it is, how it works, and what you need to do to treat it. Um, my biggest recommendation for people is to really think through the idea and say to themselves, okay, Dr. Bruce, you know, I feel like this could be a health concern and maybe I need to talk with somebody. Well, if you think that you need to talk with a sleep specialist, how would you go about doing that? That might be a question that you would have. Well, there's actually two or three different ways. Number one is um, you could actually call up your general practitioner doctor and you could say, you know what? I heard this podcast with this crazy Dr. Bruce guy and I think I might have sleep apnea. You got any ideas? They may ask you to come in and do a quick physical or they may say, you know what? I've got a friend who's got a sleep lab. Let's go check it out. So they might send you directly to there or you could actually call up a sleep laboratory that's local to you. Um, um, I would say 95% of the time, they've got a doctor there that will actually help evaluate you and determine if you need a test as well. So there's really two ways to do that. Now, if you don't know how to find a sleep center near you, if you go to www.sleepcenters.org, that's sleepcenters.org, what you will find is a zip code map. So you type in your zip code and it will tell you about the accredited sleep centers near you. Two be clear, you want to have you want to go to a sleep center that has been accredited by the American Academy of Sleep Medicine. You also want to have a doctor who is reading your study, who is uh, board certified by the American Board of Sleep Medicine. Um, and so uh, I am actually board certified by the American Board of Sleep Medicine. If you remember, while I'm a PhD, I did take and pass the MD boards. Um, 
But you really are looking for people who are board certified, who are at accredited centers. As a matter of fact, all of the laboratories I've worked at have been accredited. Uh, and um, it's really the best medicine out there that you can find. So um, I, I'm glad we had an opportunity to talk today about obstructive sleep apnea, what it is, how it works, uh, and how to identify it. Um, what I thought I would do next is maybe answer a couple of questions that I got um, generally speaking from people. Now, these may or may not um, have anything to do with sleep apnea. So let's see. The first question we had, um, they said, Dr. Bruce, I've been reading your newsletter for a long time now. I read your chronotype book and follow a good amount of what you write about. And I appreciate that information. There are two things that you do not talk about that I have a hard time finding information about online. One is sleep apnea. Hello, we just did a whole thing on it. And two is hypnagogic and hypnopompic hallucinations. I'm 26 and I've been suffering from both for years. It would be greatly appreciated if you could point me in the right direction or give me some info on both. Let's go. So we already talked a whole lot about sleep apnea. Let's talk about hypnagogic and hypnopompic hallucinations. So hypnopompic means as you are falling asleep, you see something. Hypnagogic is as you are waking up, you see or hear something. So hypnagogic and hypnopompic hallucinations are actually quite common for people who are highly sleep deprived. We also see them occasionally in people with narcolepsy. They are part of what we call the narcolepsy triad, which is three different symptoms that are very unique to narcolepsy, which is sleep paralysis. Many people have questions about that. Hypnagogic or hypnopompic hallucinations and something called cataplexy. Cataplexy is a situation where during times of highly expressed emotion like fear or joy, um, the person loses muscular control. Now, the good news for uh, this individual is that um, hypnagogic and hypnopompic hallucinations, generally speaking, are usually due to sleep deprivation. If you get a little bit more rest, they should go away. If that is not the case, it is probably a good idea for you to talk with a neurologist and or sleep specialist because they may have some ideas for helping you with that as well. I have actually seen historically um, the use of certain medications to be helpful in this also. Great question. Let's see, next question. Um, hello, I have a long history of using supplements and years of sleep hygiene. I'm a health coach who is advised on the subject as well. Being in the middle of perimenopause, ooh, that's a tough one. It's an ever-challenging landscape managing sleep. You endorse many products. I have tried a few. Not being of unlimited resources to buy all gadgets, I'm wondering between the Ebb headgear and the Chili bedding system, both costly investments, which item would you go with? I'm in the midst of seasons changing. I live in the Midwest. I spend a few weeks getting bedding and room temp squared away. Thanks. This is an interesting question. So here's what I can tell you is I've tried them both. Um, there was a recent study that was just released on the Ebb uh, cooling system, I believe it's called the Ebb Versa Cool Drift, uh, and menopause in particular. Um, I do not believe that there's ever been a study done with the chili pad and menopause. So I think that I would be more likely to say looking into the Ebb headgear. Um, but one of the things I will tell you is we are having a promotion coming up of the 12 nights of Christmas. And guess what? Ebb is going to be donating one of those. So hey, if all of you out there or maybe this health coach enter into the contest, we're going to be giving away all kinds of cool stuff from lots of the people that I work with. But Ebb has been generous enough to donate one of those things. And who knows, maybe Chili Pad will as well. 
Then my third and final question for the day is, let's see, I can only sleep three or four hours every day. I've tried restricted sleep. This has been going on for three months and started with a little bit of anxiety. I don't have thoughts running through my mind when I wake up, just cannot fall back into sleep. I took 800 milligrams of magnesium one and a half hours before bed for almost a month, 5 HTP, 50 milligrams, melatonin, three milligrams, one hour before bed in the recent two days. Didn't see a difference. I also take DIM, which is uh, estrogen metabolism in the morning for two weeks. I'm 52, but I don't have any perimenopausal symptoms, no hot flashes, etc. So the very first thing that I would say is if you're only sleeping three to four hours each day, I would want to know what your chronotype is. And I would want to see if we could get you in your chronotypical swim lane, if you will, um, in terms of your sleep schedule and see if we can figure that out. You have It appears as though you're taking quite a bit of stuff here. There's magnesium, there's 5-HTP, there's melatonin in lots of different dosages. Um, one of the things I would say, not being self-serving here, is you might want to try Sleep Doctor PM. Um, Sleep Doctor PM, I've got two different formulations. Uh, one is created for the beginning of the night. That one actually has the appropriate dosage of melatonin in it. Um, it also has things like magnesium, 5-HTP, but it's also got L-theanine, magnolia bark, and jujubicide, three things that you're not aware of that actually can be very helpful with anxiety. Also, the melatonin dosage that you're taking appears to be a bit high. The appropriate dose is somewhere between a half and one and a half milligrams. Um, in Sleep Doctor PM, we have about a half a milligram in there. Also, I have a second formula for that, which is the middle of the night formula. So if you find falling asleep, but you wake up in the middle of the night, this formula is a little bit different. While it has a similar ingredient profile, no melatonin, because you certainly don't want to take that at three o'clock in the morning, um, it's got about half the active ingredients in it. So that way you avoid that hangover the next day. So what I would say for you is you might want to give Sleep Doctor PM a try. I think that could be interesting. I would also look at your chronotype and make sure that you're in that chronotypical swim lane. And then also I would I would recommend that you check out my blog. I have written extensively about menopause. Um, and I think you might find uh, some interesting articles about perimenopause uh, uh, and menopause as well. And then just some general women's health related supplements and uh, questions answered for you there. Well, this has been a really fun podcast, certainly different than what I'm used to doing, but I hope everybody enjoyed the deep dive on sleep apnea. We still had the mailbag full of questions, and uh, I'm excited to have been able to spend a little bit of time with you. So thank you all so very much. This is Dr. Michael Bruce, the sleep doctor, wishing you sweet dreams. Sweet dreams.